So I want to jump right into John chapter 11. We've been in this story of Lazarus. We've been a bigger picture. We've been going through the entire gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've been kind of in it for a pretty lengthy time, but just kind of making our way. We're not in any rush. And uh, right now we've come across chapter 11. This is an important chapter, especially for the larger narrative of John. John is trying to emphasize how significant Jesus is. And he basically takes one of the greatest of all miracles that Jesus accomplishes and highlights it and gives an entire chapter to this and the kind of after effects of this as well, which we will get into in due time. Um, But one of the things we talked about from the very beginning, and I'll just kind of give a quick little outline of this, is that essentially there's four different scenes that take place in the story of Lazarus. the one that we looked at last week was the delays or when God delays, how there are oftentimes when we uh, expect God to do something and then for whatever reason God delays or doesn't respond the way that we oftentimes expect for him to respond. Today what we're going to be taking a look at is when God invites because God actually, through the person of Jesus, invites uh, the, his good friends into uh, an affirmation of faith and confidence in him, which we'll get to in a minute, and then the last other two parts, which we will get to in the next upcoming weeks. But I really want to just focus on verses 17 to 27. Um, Rather than reading the entirety of the story, my encouragement to you on your own time would just read all of chapter 11. It's it's worth really being familiar with it because it's a fantastic story. But what I want to really just focus on right now is verses 17 to 27. That's what we'll be looking at. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 17. Why don't you just pay attention and listen uh, to story time with Pastor B. Here we go. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus then said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And this is the word of the Lord. So we looked at last week the cast of characters that kind of make up the story. We saw that there was Lazarus and Mary and Martha and uh, this ambiguous group of people called the the Jews, quote unquote, the Jews. That's how John describes him. What I want to do right now is within this larger narrative or story, I want to really kind of focus on a little bit of the plot line that kind of encompasses what we just read here. So I'll kind of go through three of these things. Hopefully this all makes sense. We're going to see, first of all, this movement where Jesus enters the scene where his dead friend lay. Then secondly, we'll talk a little bit about how Jesus encounters his friend's disappointment, which is pretty powerful and phenomenal. Did you guys, did you guys catch the disappointment in Martha's voice? If you didn't, it'll become really, really apparent in just a moment. And we're going to wrestle a little bit with this larger concept of, of disappointment. What happens when we find our lives, ourselves in, in life and we find ourselves engaged or engaging currently with disappointment. Does, does that describe any of you guys? Have you ever been through a place like that in life where certain things, especially maybe even tethered to God, where you hope God is leading and then somehow God 
God, you, it would seem as if he has not lived up to expectations. Uh, that's a very real emotion, and it's something that the Bible addresses. And then lastly, we'll take a look at how Jesus encourages confidence in himself. Um, so let's, in due season, get to each one of these. Number one, let's focus on Jesus enters in the scene where his dead friend lay. And again, verses 17 and 19, it says this. And when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And we'll talk a little bit about death in the context of Judaism. So there's a couple of things that would not that are not necessarily part of the story, but no doubt would be part of actually the larger, broader uh, historic Judaistic tradition that we might not be aware of. So I'll kind of pause and reflect upon a couple of those things. Number one, the idea of the soul this is within some forms of folklore in Judaism. They have this belief that the soul just kind of hovers over the body for up to three days prior to actual like dismissal or going on to the next world. Now, again, this is, this is folklore. You're not going to find this in Scripture. It's not going to necessarily be in necessarily any of the writings of the Bible. But again, different myths and ideas kind of formulate around that. In fact, to this very day, some Jews kind of hold the same type of mythological idea that when someone dies, their soul just sort of hovers around that actual physical body, um, which then kind of leads to, to the, the next little phase of mourning practices. So this is very significant. And, and this is something for us as Westerners, we might not have a whole lot of knowledge of because I think the way we as Westerners deal with grief, loss, pain, hardship, death, is we don't, we, we don't deal with it. <laughs> we, are, are, we, we drink a bottle of wine and we call it dealing with it. And it, that's not really dealing with it. Um, we try to distract ourselves from circumstances and we just scroll away. That's really not dealing with it. It's not really a proper process of grief. And so one of the ways in which ancient Jews would 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 do this is they would basically hire, this is going to sound kind of funny, but they would hire professional mourners that would show up and they would have this massive procession of mourning. There was a thing called Shiva, which for seven days they would basically all mourn together. And during this seven days, close family members would gather, they would mourn, they would receive visitors, they would recite prayers. Uh, like I mentioned, they would, they would hire these professional mourners that would come in And the idea behind this was to ensure not only a visible, but also an audible manifestation of grief. So again, if you've ever seen, maybe even like um, portions of the Middle East, where when someone dies, you see those deep expressions of wailing, groaning, crying, like loud sounds that kind of come forth out of a person's mouth and really kind of guttural cries. This is all part of the process of of moaning and groaning the loss of someone. Um, Again, some would argue, say, well, this is kind of theatrics, right? Could be, sure. I mean, there is an element of of that, of course, when you hire a professional and they show up on the scene or like, hey, what's up? Where do I go? You know, go over there and then just wail. Like, okay, you're a hire, you're a hired hand to professionally wail. So yes, there's a sense of theatrics involved in that. But again, the aim behind that is to really express deep grief in this particular moment. So no doubt this is happening. And then lastly, we see kind of the element of burial promptness. So we see uh, when someone would die within traditional Jewish law that 24 hours after death, they would immediately bury this person. So during this burial process, um, you would have mourners, family, as well as professional paid mourners. They're kind of crying and weeping and wailing, um, while at the same time, this belief that, you know, their good friend is still kind of potentially hovering. But John tells us a really unique detail of this story. Did you guys catch it? How many days was it when Jesus showed up? Was this intentional? Yes. If you guys were here last week, yes. 
100% intentional because Jesus is approached by, you know, these people that come to him and like, hey, this guy Lazarus is, is about to die. And, Je- and it tells us literally that Jesus just kind of hung around and waited. And then he ends, his, ends up going into this uh, city. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He literally was waiting till what day? Fourth day. Gosh, that seems kind of hard. It was, it's almost like he's heightening the level of potential disappointment in order to do something that's totally unexpected. In, in other words, to blow minds that we know the end of the story, obviously, just punchline, Lazarus raises from the dead, all right? Um, but Jesus knows all this, and he's kind of playing this whole scenario out, knowing exactly what he's going to do. He told us last week as we were here uh, looking at this, he says, I'm doing this for the glory of God, that God will be glorified ultimately through this incredibly hard and painful and difficult circumstances. Um, in the Talmud, which is sort of a collection of teachings and ideas uh, that have originated within Judaism, uh, probably around the time of Jesus, there's a couple things that, that would be said. So one of them, uh, according to one of the rabbis, he says, when one sees a funeral procession, they should rise and say, blessed is the true judge. So again, you can imagine during this funeral procession of Lazarus, people mourning, crying, weeping, wailing. Uh, other people are rising up, standing up, saying, hey, blessed is the true judge. Blessed is the true judge. And this is another like, little thing from the Talmud. It says, during burial, say, there's what they're supposed to say or, or recite, arise, arise from your bed, awake and sing. It's kind of an odd thing to say because I'm sure majority of times that, that never happened, but they continued in this ritual process of arise, arise, awake your soul and, and sing. And here they are, no doubt, probably according to tradition, doing all of this. And, and then Jesus shows up day, not three, not two, but day four. After the soul's like, again, according to folklore, the soul's already gone. The hope of resurrection passed. At least any form of movement or miracle happening in this moment, gone. So it's like Jesus is waiting for every, every, I don't, I don't know, every element of dream that somehow in this moment, Lazarus could live on his own or some form of circumstance uh, to, to go away. And Jesus shows up, in a sense, into this particular moment. And then this kind of leads to the very next thing. Uh, he tells us a little bit about the location. John, again, gives us these little details. He says it's in this place called Bethany, which he tells us later it's about two uh, miles from Jerusalem. So this kind of would have been like a bedroom breakfast, um, a be- bedroom area region, uh, that not too far from Jerusalem that Jesus, his friends would have lived. Jesus would have spent a lot of time there. And so here's kind of the entry march into this particular region of Bethany and then ultimately going into the city of Jerusalem, which the Gospel of John kind of ends there, not only on a low note, but on a high note, if you know what I'm talking about, like low note being his death, high note being his resurrection. So that being said, that kind of sets the stage for all this. Now, secondly, let's take a look at how Jesus encounters his friend's disappointment. I'm going to read again, verse 20 says this, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So she makes this affirmation that no doubt would have been tethered to this idea from the 
book of Daniel that talks about in the last day or in the last days shall arise all human beings. It was this native belief that, uh, that a resurrection. So, so Jews, for the most part, most Jews, again, there was, there was some theological disagreements between Sadducees and Pharisees who were the religious leaders. Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. But aside from that, for the most part, most Jews had some sort of belief that all human beings would arise, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt, according to uh, the book of Daniel. No Jew had a belief that there would be a resurrection prior to that end times. No Jew had an idea about that. But, but here, here's the context. I'm just trying to set the stage of all that's kind of transpiring and all that's kind of taking place. Um, but as a result of that, because it's day four, brother's been dead. We saw last week that his body, no doubt, stinketh, according to King James. Um, in other words, hopes are completely gone and lost. But Jesus engages with her. And in this encounter, he's, he's no doubt encountering uh, these disappointments. She's obviously disappointed. You, can, you, you get this very clearly. Had you been here, Lord, I know he'd be alive. Had you been here earlier, we, maybe he wouldn't have even died. We've watched you, Jesus. We've seen your hand. We've watched what you've done. We, we know what you're capable of, in other words. And this is one thing that really kind of, like, honestly, like, um, amazes me about both Martha and Mary is not only is there a deep sense of disappointment in what Jesus did or didn't do, but it's kind of commingled with faith. Did you get that? It's not just despairing disappointment. And there's a difference between despairing disappointment where you are looking for angles and ways to accuse God. That's, that's she is, I don't get any idea of accusation or disdain towards Jesus. Do you, do you? I don't sense any hint of that. If anything, I sense a deep, Trust and confidence in Jesus, and as a result of that deep trust and confidence comes this disappointment. We know what you're capable of, Jesus, and you didn't do it. And we're not really sure why. Have you ever been in that place? We know what you can do, Jesus, but you didn't move for me in this context. You may have done it for others, but not, not us. And, and we thought as a result of that, Jesus, you, you are deeply in love with us. Okay? These are the questions, like, we, we, we know that you love us. We know that you loved Lazarus. We know that you're capable of doing miracles, but we also know that you didn't. And so we're troubled. And this is what's going on in this encounter. And, and it kind of got me on this little bit of a rabbit trail. Sometimes when I study, I kind of go on these rabbit trails of thinking about other occasions throughout the Bible where this becomes a theme. And here's a handful of ones that just kind of came up to me as I was thinking through this. Uh, David. Uh, the Psalms, I should say, are, are filled with this, this theme of not disdain and disappointment, but trust and disappointment. Like, God, I know what you can do, but... So, for example, David in Psalm 22, a, one, a psalm that, that Jesus himself adopts and uses, um, he expresses disappointment and abandonment. Listen to what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first line of that. Like, this is David's guttural cry to God. Again, we don't know exactly the circumstances that David was going through in that moment of his life, but whatever it was, it was this deep sense of disappointment and abandonment. God, where are you? I know you inhabit the universe, 
but right now, in this moment, I feel completely forsaken and abandoned by you. I think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, this radical confrontation that he has against these prophets of Baal, and he rises against them and overcomes them. And I mean, he's no doubt got like blood on his body and his hands, and he runs away, and he realizes he's actually being chased, hunted down by this lady by the name of Jezebel, Queen Jezebel. Again, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, uh, she was a horrible human being, horrible, 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 wicked human being politician, power, powerful, and uh, she was hunting him down, and she had the power and the ability to figure out where he was at. I mean, talk about surveillance state. She knew exactly ways in which, you know, that maybe he wasn't even aware of, that she would hunt him down. But so he runs, he flees out in the wilderness, and here he is, like on one hand, this massive victory, and on his other hand, this overwhelming inarticulate fear that's just there, and all he knows is he's feeling this deep sense of disappointment, commingled with exhaustion. He's so tired. And he's at the same time just like, God, at, on, the, on the cusp of this victory, I'm being hunted down to be executed. And, you know, it's that moment where he cries out to God and God speaks to him in still small voice and God shows up, God shows his presence. But again, this, this coupling of disappointment and confidence in, in God or trust disappointment and belief. Um, I think about the story of Jonah. Again, you guys are probably familiar with the story of Jonah. He's this prophet, you know, and I say prophet in air quotes. He's this prophet, and, and I say in air quotes because prophets are to do what God, yeah, what God wants them to do, but Jonah, Jonah's kind of like the uh, anti-prophet. Like, um, his job is to do what God wants him to do, but he is basically saying, no, I will not do what you want me to do because the mission that you have for me to do is to go preach hope and salvation and judgment to my enemies and brutal, brutal enemies. It's, it'd be kind of like today, God speaking to a prophet in Israel right now or someone randomly in Israel say, I want you to go to Hamas and preach to them and I will forgive all of them and I will wash them and I will spare any form of judgment or destruction or brokenness or ruin. And that Jewish person being like, absolutely not. I know what Hamas is capable of. I know what Hezbollah is capable of. And I will not ascend into a circumstance like that and begin to preach with the hopes of bringing about repentance. And this is exactly what's happening with Jonah. And then, lo and behold, Jonah goes, does it reluctantly. God moves. The entire nation of Assyria repents, and God spares his hand. And he's really, really disappointed and just really frustrated with God, actually. Again, if you know the story, it's only four chapters long. It's phenomenal. But this emphasizes the importance of highlighting sometimes when disappointment takes place. And then lastly, Habakkuk, he expresses disappointment and confusion with what God is doing. God says, hey, I'm doing a work in your midst. I think it's like chapter two. He says, I'm doing a work in your midst. And even if I were to tell you what I'm doing, you wouldn't make sense to you. You'd probably push back. And God says, what I'm doing is I'm raising up the Babylonians. They're going to come against the people of Israel. They're going to judge them. And Habakkuk's no doubt like, grappling with that. God, how are you, how is it possible that you, a holy God, is actually moving and working through a wicked, evil, pagan nation like Babylon? And God's like, see, I told you. You wouldn't get it. You don't understand. And this is one of the reasons why we see oftentimes throughout the Old Testament these expressions that God's ways are not our ways. What God does is so oftentimes not aligned with how we think our expectations are oftentimes far lower than what God has expectations of in circumstances. And it's one of the reasons why I think as human beings, frail, I'd add, frail human beings, 
we oftentimes wrestle with disappointment in God. So where do we go from here? And what I think is important for us to note is that there is place in the biblical literature as well as in the life of faith where both disappointment and feelings of abandonment or exhaustion or frustration or confusion play out. Um, If I can put it another way, God is big enough to handle your disappointments. Take your disappointments to him. Be a person of faith as you process and work through those disappointments. We see that's exactly what is happening here in this particular story. So let's move on to the very last little segment here in the plot line. We see then, lastly, Jesus then encourages confidence in himself within this dialogue between Jesus and Martha. She's expressing her disappointment. Jesus responds by saying, do you believe uh, in this resurrection that will take place? She says, yes, I do at the end of time. But then Jesus goes on and he says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me that we die, shall he yet live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Is his invitation to her. And this is one thing I kind of find really fascinating about the life of Jesus is as he's interacting with her. Is he encourage her, encourages her uh, to press on in to a life of confidence. But one thing I think it's important to note is that Jesus is not just simply talking about an event. Do you believe in the event called the resurrection that will happen one day of everlasting to come? And it's as if Jesus is not pointing to an event, he's pointing to himself. It's an important distinction to make. Jesus' whole idea is to not necessarily anchor ourselves, our hope in something or an event that will come at some point in the future, but in a person. Jesus is highly, deeply relational. He wants that sense of relationship to begin to take place. And so he presses her into that. So as I was thinking about this, I was just kind of, again, processing, like, where do disappointments come from? How do they originate? How do they develop? How do they cultivate? Because every one of us, I think we have had disappointments, no doubt, in our lives. It's a human emotion. It's something that takes place. And as I was kind of thinking about this, there's at least five different ways in which these this emotion of disappointment takes place. I'll go through each one of these real quickly. Number one, unmet expectation. This is the idea of a disjunction between expectation and reality. In other words, you expect something to happen, and then reality takes place. Does that that make sense? We're all familiar with this. I'm just kind of putting labels to this. And oftentimes, these expectations can be shaped by culture, uh, society, social media, personal expectations, things that I have deep in my heart. It's one of the reasons why I would say the, the, the idea that says to just live according to your truth is actually a toxic, destructive ethos to live according to. And unless what you mean by your truth is your truth aligned with, shaped by, flushed through thoroughly with the truth of Jesus, then then our truths oftentimes are prone and subject to multiple forms of mutation and change and, and reshaping throughout our lifetime. You know, as I was thinking about this, like, I, I thank God, I got hindsight behind me, that there were so many times throughout life I had deep longings and desires for something, like almost even moments where I felt I'm so confident about this particular thing that I, I, I think I might even be able to throw out the God card over that. You know, you know what I mean by that? Like the idea, like, I think this is exactly what God wants for me. I'm confident this is what God wants for me. And then that, whatever that thing is, did not happen. 
and moments of feeling deeply disappointed as a result of that. But again, hindsight, look back. Years later, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful God did not give me that thing that I was so confident that I should have had and that God was giving to me in that moment. Because this is the idea of unmet expectations. I have expectations. We all have expectations about how life should go, who you're going to marry, what type of job you're going to have, how you play out your sexuality, how you spend your money, how you're going to make money, how you're going to invest your money, how the investments are going to play out. All of these things are expectations that shape our lives. And when they're unmet, then it leads to a deep sense of disappointment. And when, again, you might tether those expectations to God, it's really easy to begin to think, well, God failed me. God failed me. And so this is what happens. Uh, The second thing is cognitive appraisal. And what I mean by this is this perception of events as a setback or a failure. In other words, something, something could happen in your life and you begin to look at that or assess that circumstance in your life or praise that a circumstance as a setback or some form of failure. And as a result of that, that then leads to living below a standard or a lifestyle that you desire or that you want or everybody else has something and you have something subpar beneath that. And there's a deep sense of uh, uh, frustration or disappointment that comes as a result of that. And I would even add in this, this is an idea where we have uh, an event interpretation, where we look at an event or a significant circumstance that takes place, and then we interpret that. And it's usually through that process of interpreting, trying to bring sense into that particular situation of loss or grief or pain or whatever it is. Um, And then as a result of that, our cognitive appraisal can lead us towards a state of like, ah, victory, or ah, super disappointed. Third is loss of control. And again, we live in a world that uh, even though this technological world in which we live in, which, which by the way, one of the reasons why things are becoming even more and more controlled or will continue on a trajectory towards even more higher tech, is it gives us more ability of thinking that we're in control with everything around us. I mean, I promise you, at some point in the future, governments, which is kind of scary, but they will have the power to control even the weather. Think about that. Control food supply. Control electricity. Control climate. Control all of these things. Now, again, on one hand, it's like, ah, that's a world of peace. We call that utopia. Really? Or could it be tyranny? I mean, it's like, again, the fine line between the two is is pretty pretty small. But the point that I would make is this, is that when we have this perception that I'm in control of all these things, but when something happens that is beyond my level of control, then chaos breaks out and disappointment takes place. Uh, Fourth one is past experiences. This is a big one. For some of us, you've had a lot of experiences in your life of disappointment, and you then rehearse this narrative in your heart or in your mind or in your head, I'm just wired for disappointment. Guess what's going to happen? You're just going to consistently see everything as a form of disappointment. And again, I would even add, this could be a tragic state of enslavement that some of you guys might be in right now. You just keep rehearsing over and over and over again. This relationship is going to end in disappointment. This job, disappointment. This newfound family, disappointment. This church seems awesome now. I feel a deep sense of enthusiasm and enchantment, but Somewhere in the back of your head is this thought of, eh, at some point, I know how the story goes, disappointment will happen. And you're trapped by that. I mean, these become moments to step out of that or to reframe a mindset according to a different narrative 
But past experiences can oftentimes influence how we think about it. We, we train ourselves to think everything is going to be a disappointment. And then lastly, comparison. When we begin to see other people's achievements and our positive ex- life experiences, uh, that oftentimes can just simply amplify our disappointments. One of the reasons why you know, sociologists have spent and invested a lot of time over the past really few years observing the impact of social media upon the general psyche of, of human beings. Is, is, I, I personally believe, and I, while I think there's a lot of benefits of social media and the internet in general, but social media in particular, I, I think the net downsides might even outweigh the upsides. <laughs> and I spent a lot of my life on it and my world in it, and, I, and I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that it has more negative impact upon you and me as human beings than the net positive. Why? Because it becomes this, this consistent um, assembly line where we're just watching what everybody else has, what other things that they have that are bringing their life joy and happiness and peace, or at least perceived joy, happiness, and peace. And we perceive that when we begin to look at our lives and our surroundings and we realize, I don't have that. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. And if you have any context or an awareness of a big God in your life or have been aware of some sort of a narrative that tethers life to this God, then it's really easy to transfer that disappointment from whatever circumstances you're dealing with to this God who is maybe not done what you thought you were supposed to do. The, the net effect on our souls is this deep sense of disappointment. So what does Jesus do in this context where his good friends, whom he loves, are no doubt dealing with disappointment? I mean, I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't you know, jump in the scene and begin to like, give some sort of reason as to what happened. Like He doesn't give any explanation. Did you notice that? He's not like unpacking, well, hey, here's what's going on right now, and here's the stuff I had on my plate, and I got a very busy schedule, and I'm just apologizing for letting you down. He's not doing any of this. Instead, he takes his words, and he reconstructs them in a way of basically saying he invites those present to realign their expectations around himself. And I I would venture to say and dare to say, this is exactly what Jesus would say to you and to me right now who have been in a state of disappointment. I'm going to end on a quick little story, and I had not anticipated sharing this, but I thought I will. And I'm not going to go into details. But there have been circumstances in my life over the past, and my my wife and my life over the past several years, where we had certain hopes and expectations. And I I think I can probably at least just say, um, we've lived in slow for 30-plus years. We've never been able to buy a house. We've watched wave after wave after wave of people that we know, like, I'm oh, buying a house, and we're on our fourth house, and we're, like, at second house, and fixer up. And we've watched it over years, and we're like, man, we've, we've been here for 30 years. We've never, and I'm, I, I want to say this really carefully. I'm not asking for pity. I'm not, you know, don't, don't come up afterwards. Hey, I got a connection. For, I don't, I'm, I'm not telling you this story for any of that reason. I'm not fishing for anything from anybody. I'm just trying to be real with our experiences. And we've had certain occasions throughout the years where We've been very close to potentially buying a house. Again, it, there's a lot of things often that have to coalesce and come together for that to happen. And there's been occasions where that has come very, very close to coming together. And one circumstance I'll just kind of tell you about, we, we spent a year and a half praying over this, like walking the property, praying over it, really, truly believing that Jesus is doing something. And this deep sense of like, oh, this is amazing, Lord. We're so excited about the possibilities and hopes and what could happen and the what ifs and amazing things. And, and then all of a sudden, it, it just, the whole thing just kind of fell through. And I remember at that moment, I, you know, we had, Sharon and I had long conversations about this. I remember just telling her, and it was, I was at a, I was a, I was a dark 
moment in that. Again, I'm being intentionally ambiguous just for, for reasons. But um, I remember in this moment, just looking at her, and just to be really frank with you, I've, I've given up dreaming on these things. I've just given up because I think I have a problem of attaching my heart to these things. And then when they fail or fall through, and maybe, maybe it's my own idolatrous heart that is constantly coming into play of fixing my expectations and hope upon something, and then it gets let down, and then I feel really raw and broken and sad. And, and it's interesting because and I remember in this conversation with her, she was just like, man, I just, and, I'm, and I wanted to reassure I'm like, I'm not doubting God. Like, I'm, my heart's deeply tethered to God. Like, I'm not questioning my faith. I'm not questioning God's love. I'm not questioning God's power. I know he's able to do that. I'm, I'm questioning how I've interpreted some of these things. It's more me. I'm frustrated with myself, disappointed with how I've interpreted, but, but nonetheless holding on to his deep sense of disappointment, but at the same time, clinging by faith to Jesus. And, and I think this is what's happening here in this context where Jesus is inviting them. Here's how you do this. Then he finishes with a statement by basically three statements I'm done. He says, I'm the resurrection of life. He's calling them to say, trust me as the one. This is, by the way, this is one of the seven, quote unquote, I am statements of Jesus where he says something. That's, that's uh, an I am meaning like I am, X, Y, Z, a chief shepherd, or I am the light of the world. In this context, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. And I think, again, even in this context, Jesus is like giving this affirmation, like not everyone is going to experience what I'm going to show you in just a moment here with regard to Lazarus. Not everyone's going to get that. Not everyone rose again from the dead. So this is, I think, if anything, Jesus is basically trying to say, look, at the end of time, all of the things that you are hoping for will come to pass in, in according to my good power. But in this life, get ready, get prepped for disappointment, but at the same time, cling tenaciously to who I am. And then lastly, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And I think what Jesus is really trying to invite not only Martha and those present, you and I as well into, is do we believe this? Listen to what Jesus says again. Verse 25 then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, though he, sh- though, uh, he shall never die. Then he says this little statement, do you believe this? And I want to just pause and finish on this like, little phrase. Because I think this, is, this will literally set a trajectory or direction in your life right now, how you answer this question. Because if your answer is, I don't, I don't believe it, then... I don't mean this in any real negative sense, but you're on your own now. You're fully on your own to figure it out. Now, honestly, and I'm just saying this from self-assessment, that feels daunting. Talk about exhausting. That feels utterly exhausting. It doesn't feel full of possibilities. In fact, it feels, feels full of dead ends, in my opinion. But Jesus invites, nonetheless, and I think when we say, yes, I do believe this, it invites us into this tension of wrestling through our disappointments while simultaneously holding to this confidence that we have that God is good. He loves us. He's for us. We might not get the things that we had hoped for or live into the expectations that we might have had, 
But this is about realigning and adjusting, a regular realigning. This is a process, a constant regular practice or habit of life where we are readjusting, realigning my expectations, your expectations around the character, the power, and the goodness of God. And I think to the degree that we either do that or don't do that will continue to set us on a course of either languishing or flourishing. And on that, I just want to invite you now to respond. Uh, in fact, what I want to do right now in closing, I want to just pray over us. I'm going to have you guys all stand. In fact, Dan, can you come on up? I would love to have Dan play the last two like little medley of I Exalt Thee. That song is so rad. And what I want for you guys to do, let's all stand, let's all stand. Um, let's all stand. And, and I want to just sing that last little segment of, of I Exalt Thee or we exalt thee as a collective. We sing this collectively. What I want for you to do as you sing this, to in, in, in your mind, be aware. You're, I'm sure as you already are, aware of those disappointments that you are currently nurturing or dealing with or working through. But at the same time, I want you to contrast those with this declaration of God, I exalt you. You alone are the treasure that I'm seeking after. You alone, God, are the one that I will adjust and align my life in some total to you and who you are. So I want to pray over us right now, and then let's just lift up our voices and sing boldly, declaring this truth over your soul, over your circumstances, over your life. And I, and I believe that something powerful can take place that helps us to go towards a path of flourishing and hope and life instead of despair and pain and anguish and exhaustion. So Jesus, right now, as we lift up our voices to you and declare over our circumstances, over our life, over our disappointments, that we exalt you. God, meet us here. Transform our hearts. Reshape us. Reaffirm, God, your love for us because of what Jesus has done. Let's lift up our voices.